the new covenant allows us to enjoy the fullness of life in the spirit, even as his commands are written on our hearts. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, again, good morning. Uh, Let's open up to Colossians chapter 2. And my Bible fell open to Lamentations. That is um, apt and timely. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be finishing the second half of this message that is called Christ-Centered Religion. So this is part two. If you missed last week, you need to go to our website and our, or our podcast and listen uh, to get kind of the uh, work of God in religion or Christ-centered religion. And then uh, our worshipful response is today's message. So if you missed last week, you need to go back and kind of follow along. And this week is really the the honest and closest, nearest application to that text. So, Colossians chapter 2, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity this morning to gather in your name. We thank you that we can meet together here and we can use the wonder of technology to Um, connect people who are watching from home, who are maybe providentially hindered from joining us. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd continue to be at work in our nation, not only as this pandemic, Lord, we pray would continue to subside and you'd be with those first responders, those people in the healthcare industry, and Lord, that every one of them would have your strength right now, that you would allow this pandemic to draw men and women to your son. Lord, we also pray for wisdom for every governmental leader, that you would draw them to your son, that they would uh, realize their insufficiency and their, uh, their need for saving, and that they would turn to the living God. So, Father, we pray that you'd be working through this. We know you are, uh, but, Lord, we pray even as um, the, the current unrest um, has broken out uh, with the death of George Floyd, Lord, we pray that the church would have an answer Uh, for the sin issue in our world. And so, Lord, we pray that today as we study your word, you would illuminate this text to us by your spirit, 
And Lord, that we would not leave the same. We would leave transformed by your renewing grace that you'd work in us and through us and that we would be the church today that has the message of hope for a world that is despairing of even life. They keep saying 2020 is a bust. Lord, we know that it's not true. This is the year where you desire to do some great things. So uh, Lord, please give us hope and help us, Lord, today as we study your word to understand this text and to apply it to our lives. It's in Christ's name and all God's people said amen. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, the teenage prophet receives a commission from God. And this commission is to speak to a wayward people, the people of Judah. And his ministry, Jeremiah's ministry, was described as a a plucking, as a breaking down. It was described as one that destroys and one that overthrows. Jeremiah was to build and to plant. All of those things were to culminate in his ministry and in his message. And early on, in his prophetic warnings, in what we call Jeremiah, we read this verse in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be, utter, or be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, there are two sins that God's people, the people of Judah, had committed. First, they had turned away from the one true God and had thus forsaken the source of of true refreshment, true satisfaction, true life and sustenance. They had turned away from God. But secondly, he says, in their spiritual thirst, they began to carve out their own cisterns. You could say they, they dug their own barren wells. And they were trying, apart from God, to find satisfaction and refreshment and life and sustenance. But it was divorced from God. And so the analogy that God gives to Jeremiah is that of living waters, of abundant, fresh spring water that comes to you in the midst of the wilderness. Imagine that. You don't have to go searching for water. The water will literally come to you in the middle of the arid desert. And so yet, rather than savoring that reviving water, the people were instead rejecting it. They were turning from it, and they were seeking with their own shovels to dig out in the sand their own source of refreshment. But as God says through Jeremiah, these wells, these cisterns were defective. They were broken. They couldn't hold any water. They were like stagnant cesspools that had the potential to bring disease and death. And ironically, they didn't satiate the actual thirst of the people. Oh, that these two sins were only committed by the people of Judah and not by us today. But sadly, today in the church of Jesus Christ, these two sins continue to persist. First, there's the rejection of the one true God and his word as sufficient and rewarding. And yet at the same time, there's an inward turning of ourselves to seek satisfaction or meaning or contentment within ourselves or within the things of this world. And so this was what Paul the Apostle was speaking against in the first century when he wrote his correspondence to the Colossian church. So when we land here in this particular text in Colossians chapter 2, we realize when we zoom out, we've already seen what Christ has done in his supreme victory over sin, death, and his enemies. We looked at that last week, the glorious good news of the gospel. And some of you came up to me afterwards or sent me correspondence. Like, it's just so good to be refreshed in what God has done in Christ. And so we saw how the debt of the law has been fully paid 
and that Christ has made dead men, you and I, alive by dying and rising again. And we saw that the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily in him, and yet he is above all rule and all authority. And thus, listen very carefully, it isn't by moving beyond Jesus into anything that one is perfected. Let me say it a different way. Spirituality is not moving past Jesus, it's holding fast to Jesus. Does that make sense? It's not moving past him, it's holding fast to him. So today, people everywhere, especially with the current climate, are wondering, how do I become perfected? How do I become better? How do I become, you could say, spiritual? And in our text today, we're going to see three main areas that Paul explains to the church that will not help us. <laughs> it will not help us achieve some sort of next-level spirituality. So uh, I just have to confess, these are things I've thought about in my own immaturity, in my own walk. So I'm not speaking from a soapbox against anyone. I'm speaking back to younger pilgrim in my walk. And these are areas that do not help perfect. If I could go back and tell myself 25 years ago, hey, this is not going to help you perfect your spiritual walk. These would be the three things Paul reiterates. So if you're taking note, we'll put them on the screen. Verses 16 and 17, Paul's going to point out that observances don't perfect you. Okay? Secondly, he's going to say in verses 18 and 19 that experiences don't perfect you. And then he points out in verses 20 through 23 that regulations don't perfect you. Okay? There is a, a place for them, but it's not to perfect you in your sanctification. So that's our guide. Let's begin with this first idea. Number one, observances don't perfect you. So look at verse 16. He says, therefore, in light of what we just learned, um, as we mentioned last week, this is the obvious application. So therefore, because of what Christ has done, because he's won the victory, because he died and rose again, because we no longer have to fear the curse of the law or the wrath of a holy God and the fact that our most impossible foe has been defeated, therefore, because all of that is true, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, new moon, or a Sabbath. So we're going to kind of dive into this little section for a minute, but Paul mentions two areas here. He mentions diet and days. Okay, so we're going to talk about these separately for a minute. He says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you about diet and days. Okay, so first let's talk about diet. Now, thankfully, observing diets was only controversial in Paul's day. <laughs> no one on social media today has any opinions about diet at all. None at all. In fact, um, recently, I'm always surprised when I post anything on Facebook, and a lot of times people don't respond at all. They don't, they don't say anything. But if I say one thing about diet, I have people I didn't even know were my friends come out of the woodwork, and they're commenting on comments. On, I mean, they're, it's like they're trolling, right? So um, I need a part-time employee just to keep up with the comments that happen on my Facebook page. Now, some of you learned that I am um, kind of doing this intermittent fasting thing, and I was thinking about keto, but um, I don't know if you knew this. I'm, I'm officially, just let me publicly tell you, I'm officially on the intermittent fasting, whole 30 keto, carb-free, fat-free, protein-free, vegan, organic, clean farm-raised, grass-fed, non-GMO, raw South Beach, paleo Atkins diet. So if you want to know what I'm having later for lunch, I think we have a picture of it. I'm having ice for lunch later today. There you go. But basically, that is not what Paul is referring to here. When Paul says, let no one judge you or pass judgment in regards to food and drink, more literally, you could say eating and drinking. So the act of eating and drinking itself, not specific types of food, 
or specific types of drink. Now, the law had lots of restrictions against certain types of food, and yet only a few provisions against drinking. So a first century Jew, uh, Jewish sect called the Essenes, they were a group that went well beyond the law, and they actually forbade all meat, and they forbade anyone to drink wine. And so the people who were spoiling the Colossians were passing judgment upon them probably about the same things. They were saying, you're not to eat any meat, you're not to drink any wine. But here's a valid question as we're on this text. Is God more pleased with me, and am I more perfected if I do avoid meat or if I avoid drinking? Well, here's what Paul told the Corinthians on the screen. 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8. this is a reminder. Paul says to them, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. This is not an aid in your sanctification. In fact, to the church in Rome, Paul said, Romans 14.2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Maybe weak in their conscience or maybe they're weak because they don't have enough protein. I don't know. Uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's the same phrase that Paul uses here in verse 16. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you about this. Okay? If you've made, uh, made it up in your own mind, that's in your own mind. It's not to be pushed or passed on others. So he mentions diet, but then he mentions days. And I want to spend a little bit more time on this. Notice the entire phrase. He says, festival, new moon, or a Sabbath. Okay, those three terms. McNaughton says this on the screen. The three terms that Paul uses in verse 16 are often used together in the Old Testament. They describe the various ceremonial days Israel was required to observe. The Greek translation, the Septuagint, uses the exact three terms that Paul uses here. So these men, the spoilers, were seeking to impose these ceremonies on the Gentile converts. However, Paul makes it clear that believers are not required to keep Old Testament ceremonial law. They must look only to Christ as every part of the law pointed to him the substance. So we have these three words. We have the festival, and that was referring to the holy days. These are the feast days that the Jews celebrated, like Passover, Pentecost, or the Feast of Booths, the festivals. But then he mentions the new moon, and this was a, a big celebration. They would have the blowing of trumpets. They would have sacrifice. They'd have feasting. They would have religious instruction. They would stop all labor and they would have no national or private feast permitted. So the new moon um, is something that's kind of difficult to time exactly. And so you'd actually have watchmen assigned to look for and wait for the new moon to appear. And as soon as it appeared in the sky, they would send word that eventually would get to the ruler of the nation, and he would pronounce, it is sanctified. And then they would declare that day a new moon, and everything would pause. So that was one uh, big day for the people of Israel. But then, this is where it gets controversial, Paul mentions a Sabbath, okay? Now, we have to understand that the mention of Sabbath here is the Jewish recognition of Shabbat, okay? We have to understand that. Only Jews kept the Sabbath, okay? This was not merely a setting apart of a day during the week to worship God. It was more than that. It was regarded as a day where you didn't lift a finger, and so the idea was to rest, to not work. But the question is, how far does that go? They followed this to the extreme. So they actually taught you're never to ignite a fire on the Sabbath. Don't ignite a fire. 
So what does that mean? That means you can't cook um, on the Sabbath day. But I, I found a, a modern rabbi who's trying to take this into the modern day. And so on this one particular website, he says this. He says, listen, you can't cook on the Sabbath, but you can start a crock pot the day before. And so as long as you start the crock pot the day before, then you're not really working. I don't know how you work with the lid. I guess the lid has to stay off. But um, it starts getting ridiculous um, because um, Jews are wondering, in modern Jews, am I violating the Sabbath? Because when I turn the key, that starts an ignition. So that same website literally said, it's probably wise for you not to start your car because that would be starting fire, but instead to walk wherever you're supposed to go. So instead of driving, you walk so that you don't work. So you see the irony here. Um, one, one particular um, advice said to tape your light switch on the day before so you don't do the work of turning the light off and then get tempted to turn it back on. You don't want ignition to happen. So in other words, the keeping of the Sabbath along with the other days of observance itself became an empty ritual where you seem to work really hard not to work at all. And Jesus even challenged the religious leaders of his day with the reality that compassion and healing, they're not exclusive to six days a week. And so the first century Jews had endless lists of what was forbidden and what was allowed that they added to the scriptures. And Josephus remarked, some groups don't even uh, touch utensils or go to the restroom. So, I mean, it got to the extreme. Now, I want to make three important points here while we're on this idea of Sabbath, okay? For us as Christians, number one, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, okay? We have to point that out. Some people try to equate the Jewish Shabbat observed on Saturday with the New Covenant Christian concept of the Lord's Day, okay? Um, they call Sunday the Christian Sabbath. We're not to do that. Nowhere in the New Testament is it designated that or encouraged to be called that, okay? The second point is that Sunday is what we call the Lord's Day. So Christians worship God. We know this every day. And yet, we choose to meet for worship on the first day of the week because of Christ's mandate, which was given between the resurrection and the ascension. So if you want verses, we've got John chapter 20, verse 1. We have Acts chapter 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. And Revelation 1, verse 10. And these show us the first day of the week. Um, Sunday is the day the New Testament recognizes in the church as the Lord's Day. So it's not a Christian Sabbath. But thirdly, the spirit of the law, that is the moral law in the Ten Commandments, that is not legalism. So if you're keeping the Ten Commandments, the moral law, that's not legalism. It's not legalistic to honor your father and mother. <laughs> you're not being legalistic because you seek to honor God and rest. So the spirit of the law was the shadow of a rest that was coming for the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews mentions that. So to wrap that up, Paul is saying we shouldn't allow people to pass judgment on Christians regarding the Jewish observance of Shabbat, okay, um, as something that we must observe in order to please God. It was a shadow of something better, and that better is the risen Savior whom we worship and celebrate together at the beginning of the week. Uh, I like what J. Vernon McGee says. He said that um, a man came to him and said, if I give you $100, um, or I'll give you $100 if you show me where the Sabbath day has been changed. And so McGee said, well, I don't think it's been changed. Saturday is Saturday, and it's the seventh day of the week, and that is the day that's been recognized as the Sabbath day. And so the man got this gleam in his eye, and he said, well, then why don't you keep the Sabbath day if it, ha if it's been, if it hasn't been changed? And McGee said, the day hasn't changed. I've been changed. <laughs> I've been given a new nature now. I'm joined to Christ. I'm part of the new creation. 
we celebrate the first day because that is the day he rose from the grave. Okay? So Paul would tell us today, we aren't, allow, we aren't to allow someone to come and tell us, you must keep the Sabbath the way the Jews kept Shabbat uh, in order to be perfected. Remember, Jesus said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. I like what John Eady says. He kind of wraps up, um, maybe says it best about true Christianity. He says, true Christianity, its feast is daily, for every day is holy. Its moon never wanes, and its serene tranquility is an unbroken Sabbath. So Paul says these things are all a shadow. If you think about what is a shadow, it's simply an image cast by an object which represents the form. Okay, he says these things are a shadow, but the substance is in Christ. So we don't get wrapped up in the shadow. And so that means we don't allow people to condemn us based on their personal shadowy preference. We don't do that. And we see semblances of this today. The Mormon cult teaches that you cannot be in good standing with God if you drink tea or you drink coffee. So I'm toast. I'm I'm done. Um, Seventh-day Adventists would say you must keep the Sabbath on Saturday. You must worship on Saturday in order to please God. But Paul says, no, these are a shadow. The, The Old Testament is a picture. It's an example. It shows us. It points us to the substance of Christ. And we could go on. We could talk about all the feasts and how they're a a picture of Christ. Time wouldn't permit it. But he says the substance is in Christ. So Paul, his point is observances. They're not going to perfect you. They're not going to sanctify you. They're just shadows. But the substance is in Christ. So don't go back into the shadows when you have Christ who's been revealed. So let's secondly look at this next point about experiences. He would say that experiences don't perfect you. Notice verse 18, another let no one. This time he says, let no one disqualify you. And here's why they would disqualify you. They are insisting on a few things. So for a minute, please take a moment and highlight or underline that phrase, let no one disqualify you. I want you to to make sure you highlight that and and get that um, standing out from the text. So in the Greek, you could translate it um, as defraud or cheat or beguile or rob. And so the root word pictures a judge at an athletic competition, and it also pictures a prize that the winner was eligible to receive. But when it's used in context here, when he says, let no one disqualify you, he's describing a referee who excludes an athlete from competition because they did not follow the rules. So you're disqualified from winning. Notice they're disqualified from competing. They're not losing their citizenship. They're just losing the honor. They're forfeiting the honor of winning the prize. Does that make sense? You're not excluded from citizenship, but you may lose the prize. So what experiences is Paul saying you could be disqualified based on what they're trying to push on you? What would they be? Well, there's really kind of um, three or four things. So first, notice that he mentions asceticism. Um, Asceticism is kind of hard to fully defined, but you could call it self-abasement. You could call it a, an over-realized or overdeveloped zeal. Maybe, uh, maybe too much of a dedication that goes beyond true Christian discipline, because there is a thing as true Christian discipline, but it goes beyond that to the extreme of denying yourself certain things as a means of spiritual perfection. Does that make sense? So these men insisted that's how you grow spiritually. The only way, you get to a certain point, but then you've got to start restricting yourself from things. That's how you go next level, man. That's it. And so Paul says, no, 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 don't be defrauded. Let me give you a picture of this. One historian on the screen noticed the, uh, noted this. He said, the Essenes, this is one group, 
adhered to strict discipline. They avoided the pleasures of the body, and there's plenty of those. They avoided them. They prohibited marriage, the possession of wealth or property, all secular talk, even the changing of shoes and clothes. And we'll talk more about asceticism in a minute. That's one thing that could disqualify you. Secondly, Paul says that they insist on the worship of angels. Now, this is really fascinating. This is where honor and respect and appreciation for God's messengers, it morphs into reverence and awe and adoration and prayer. So stay with me. People were encouraged to give glory to angels and to seek them as mediators. Does that sound familiar to you? We're going to go and we're going to seek other mediators. We're going to seek other helpers who have done great things sent from God. Mm, sounds a little bit Catholic, like the idea of saints. Well, several centuries after Paul wrote this letter, historians record that the, the archangel Michael was worshipped here at Colossae, and they actually built a temple in his honor. Now, some Catholic interpreters have worked hard to exclude verse 18 from the canon of Scripture. Why would they do that? because of how clearly this condemns the Roman Catholic concept of praying to and revering saints. And so Paul says, don't be disqualified by worshiping or revering or praying to some other mediator. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So um, thirdly, Paul says, here's another thing that could take you out and disqualify you. He says that these men put stock in visions. He says they go on in detail about visions, you could translate it this way, making a parade of things which he has seen. Just this endless parade. Here's all the things that God has shown me. Okay? There's no objective truth when someone has a vision. So if I've seen something or heard something that I suppose comes from God, then it trumps your opinion. All I have to do is say, well, God told me. God showed me. Uh, back in the 70s, I guess a um, group of people showed up at my dad's doorstep, and they said, hey, God told me. Um, that you were supposed to give me your car. And uh, my dad was <laughs> brilliant. He said, well, God didn't tell me that, and he slammed the door. <laughs> so how can you refute that? It, uh, God showed me. How can you refute that? That's the trump card. How many times in history has a cult been founded on that phrase, God has given me a vision? See, these men put stock in what they had supposedly seen. But finally, the person who disqualifies Christians, Paul says, is someone who's pridefully sensual. Note with me, Paul describes the spoilers as someone who's puffed up without reason by his sensual mind. Literally, that phrase is the mind of the flesh. And we know that that's enmity with God, Romans chapter 8. He, he's puffed up in what he's seen and how superior he is spiritually compared to others. And thus he lives instinctually, not by the scriptures, but by sensuality. He doesn't live by the word, but by his flesh. So let's put all this together, guys. These men were pushing a spirituality that relied on subjective truth, additional mediators, and personal discipline led by proud, sensual men. Paul says these experiences are out of the boundaries of Scripture. So don't look to them to win the prize. In fact, they will disqualify you from the prize. But notice in verse 19, these spoilers were not holding fast to the head. And there should be a capital H there. They're not holding fast to the head, Christ. So we don't look for experiences that move us beyond Christ because, as I said earlier, spirituality is not moving past Jesus. It's holding fast to Jesus. Paul says Christ is the head from whom the whole body, 
that is the body of Christ. Look around for a moment. If you're watching at home, you can't do this, but look around for a moment. We are not a disjointed. It may have felt that way recently, but we're not the disjointed body. We are the unified. We're one expression, but there is the unified body of Christ. And he says, when we're connected to the head, each of us, then we are nourished and we're knit together. So the body that's cut off from the head is disjointed, it is disconnected, and thus it's unnourished. So if you want to grow spiritually, you don't go beyond Christ and find new experiences. You stick to his word, you cling to Christ. So summarize this. The the Colossian heretics promoted Jesus plus tradition, Jesus plus discipline, Jesus plus other mediators, Jesus plus mystical visions. But Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. So we don't need to add anything more to Jesus to find the way, to find life, to find the truth. He is the truth. And so the growth that comes from God, Paul says, true spirituality is only and solely experienced when you're connected to Christ. So other experiences will not perfect you, but abiding in Christ will. So then he gets to this third idea, and that's that regulations don't perfect you. Look at verse 20. This is his argument. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And here they are. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So note with me what he says. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are, he says, are corrupting things. So you eat them, you drink them, and they're gone. They're the things of this world. They're based on human precepts, human teachings. In other words, you could say they're man-made. They don't come from God. They originate with man. And he says, someone who follows these regulations, verse 23, on the surface appears to be wise. He says, they indeed have an appearance. They have a veneer of wisdom because they promote self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. So they look impressive. Like, wow, that guy's really disciplined. Oh, wow, he doesn't do any of those things. And yet, he says, they're really of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says man-made regulations don't actually defeat the desires of the flesh. And what's worse is they actually can puff you up in your arrogance, which is the worst of the flesh. So notice with me, Paul mentions that these are things that you don't do. So this is the what we call asceticism, the extreme discipline that is not ultimately Christianity. It's going with what is written, and it goes beyond that, okay? That's kind of a good definition of asceticism. It takes what's written, goes beyond it. Remember in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that, right? We could take a quiz, a Bible quiz, and we all know that that's the command. Well, here's what Eve recounted to the serpent, Genesis chapter 3. The serpent said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, Satan questions God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We don't see that additional clause, and you shall not touch it. That's something that Eve added. Asceticism takes a command and it goes beyond it to extremes. So let me follow me. There is a new covenant practice of fasting, right? There is the Christian practice of prayer. There's, of course, self control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. 
We're told to put off the works of the flesh that's expected in uh, the believer who walks in the Spirit. We're to read and study God's Word, and we're to grow in our knowledge um, of His Word and of Christ. Those are things expected of a maturing disciple. But see, asceticism is birthed in this notion that matter itself is evil. The body's completely corrupt. And, and so the more you deny the body, then the more you deny the flesh. And so they would take those disciplines and take them to extremes. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, according to Athanasius, um, Anthony, who is the father or the founder of Christian mon- uh, monasticism, according to him, Anthony never changed his vest and never washed his feet. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, one monk wore so many chains that he had to crawl around on his hands and knees. Another monk would not even give in to his body's desire to sleep restfully. So for 40 years, he didn't lie down while sleeping. I don't know what he did, but he didn't lie down. One monk sat naked in a swamp for six months until mosquito bites made him look like he had leprosy. And then another monk spent 11 years in a hollowed out tree trunk. And those are all weird, but no one compares to Simeon the stylite. Simeon spent 37 years living, standing on different pillars. And as they got older, he, as he got older, they got taller and narrower. And so the last pillar that he stood on was 66 feet high, and he died in the 5th century at 72 years old. I don't know if he fell off the pillar or no. I mean, this is, this is the extreme of asceticism. And so one person was so impressed that he said, I'm going to emulate Simeon. I want to I do what Simeon did. Um, well, he couldn't find a pillar. So he found a chair and put it on the kitchen table in his home. And his desire was to sit on that chair for the rest of his life, fasting and praying. But the problem was he had a family. <laughs> so here's what he said. Um, he said, I perceived that it is a very difficult thing to be a saint while living with your own family. I saw why Jerome went into the desert. These are silly, right? They, they seem to be wise. Oh, I, I don't do those things. Look at how pure and, and pious I am. But they don't actually have value in curbing the desires of the flesh. And so we need to walk in the spirit so we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We don't need more outward regulations. We need inward renewal. And so Paul's entire premise in verse 20 is to remind the Colossians, you've died with Christ. So the elementary principles, the basic tenets of this world are dead to us and we are dead to them. We're, we're not, we may be physically alive in the world, but we're spiritually resurrected. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we'll unpack that more next week. But in the meantime, I want us to apply this passage of scripture to our lives here in 2020. So if you're taking note, these are kind of three areas that I, I think we can apply this text for us today. The first is this. I want you to jot these down or take a picture. Number one, don't pass judgment or receive it. The Colossians were subjected to a lot of condemning questions from the heretics. And so Paul says, listen, don't pass judgment and don't let people pass judgment upon you. So they may have sounded like this. Here here have been maybe some of the questions. The questions may have been like, hey, are you kosher in your diet? Hey, are you observing the feasts? Hey, did you just help someone up off the ground on the Sabbath? Don't you know what day it is? Well, well, if you're doing the right things, then you're in right standing with God. But if you aren't, well, then you need to observe these things to get closer to him. Okay, that was Paul's day. Today, it might sound a little bit more like this. So how did you observe Lent this year? Or maybe, are you having your quiet time every morning? 
How long is your quiet time? How early do you get up to spend in quiet time? When's the last time you read the book of Malachi? Uh, maybe it's something like this. Hey, I saw you missed the singles retreat. You know, if you're not at every single event that the church hosts or spend at least an hour in prayer and Bible reading every day, then you're not pleasing God. And if you are, well, then clearly you're doing those things that makes God pleased with you. No, the new covenant allows us to enjoy the fullness of life in the spirit, even as his commands are written on our hearts. We're not under law, we're under grace. And so we're not made holy or brought to a state of perfection by rituals or restrictions themselves. What we are is brought into bondage. The teacher's commentary says this, how empty the rigorous life the Gnostics proposed. Keep regulations, worship higher powers, eat this, don't eat that, strictly observe rituals and taboos. Paul's point is that while such self-discipline may limit expression of certain kinds of sins, and that is true, but he says the sinful nature will still find occasion to express itself as in spiritual pride. The person groping for a touch of God loses connection with Christ when he or she focuses on the shadows of human effort. That taste of true spirituality for which we all yearn is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ as head of a living body. You see, holy days and special diets are shadows, but the substance is in Christ. So let's be careful that we're not passing judgment on our brothers and sisters in Christ based on our preferred shadow. Let's not allow ourselves to receive condemnation from others who tell us how to pronounce Yeshua or which day true Christians worship or what type of bathing suit or car Christians are not supposed to wear or drive. Enough with the judgment. Don't pass it. Don't receive it. Draw close to Christ. Okay. Secondly, I want to encourage us as we apply this. Number two, don't be disqualified. Remember, the way that you become disqualified is by adding unbiblical experiences to your faith and joining yourself with them as if they're the mark of spiritual growth or depth, and they're not. Unbiblical experiences are the ways you become disqualified. You must stay connected to Christ the head. One person said it this way, the genuine believer glories in Christ, not in his experience. He follows the word led by the Holy Spirit. He abides in Christ, and as a result, he experiences every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Such an experience with the head should quench any desire to seek any other experience that deviates him away from the way, the truth, and the life in Christ. Is there any experience in your life, in your past, that does not line up with Scripture? Some people would say, well, don't put God in a box. Hey, God isn't limited to a box, but he has limited his revelation to a book. So if our experience doesn't line up with Scripture then it's not scripture that needs to be thrown out. It's our experience. So don't be disqualified, believer. Be a Berean. Test the spirits. Square them up with scripture. Don't be disqualified. Finally, number three, don't seek life in things that you're dead to. Don't seek life in them. Listen, regulations seem to produce life. Oh, I don't listen to secular music. I don't watch television. I don't have electricity. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls who do, right? That's been around for 50 years. Asceticism does not produce life. It doesn't even prevent the flesh. Do you guys know what a red herring is? You've heard of these, this phrase, a red herring? Basically, um, they would, back in the day, it's an actual fish, but um, they would train hunting dogs to follow the scent of their prey. And once the dogs were tuned to the right scent, they would try to train them by throwing off the scent. They would take a red herring, a very stinky fish, and they would drag it across the path of the prey 
to try to throw the dog off the scent. And sometimes it worked, but then the dogs learned to recognize the smell of the red herring, so they'd stay on target. And so essentially, Paul is saying, these things are diverting your attention from what you should be pursuing. The key to authentic spirituality is pursuing Jesus Christ. So stop being diverted off the path. Stop seeking life in things that you've died to. Now, we're going to close and I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to, I don't know how we're going to do this with the mic. We'll figure it out. Um, but during this song, we want to invite you to, um, to, to um, grab the communion elements. Um, they're going to be at each corner of the um, coffee bar. And so we're going to um, have a time of communion here in just a moment. Um, as the song is playing, I'm going to pray in just a moment. As the song is playing, go ahead and with your family, grab the elements, come back to your seats and have a seat and hold on to them. And then I'll lead us in a time of communion together. All right? Um, in the meantime, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ in our salvation. And Lord, it can be so confusing when we desire to live a life that's pleasing to you. We don't want to sin. We don't want to walk in darkness. But Lord, these things um, are easy for us to be diverted from the head, diverted from the truth of who Christ is. And so, Lord, would you help us today to understand and to discern what is a shadow and what is substance? What is something that will disqualify and what is something that will promote holiness and glory? Lord, what is something that is just an outward act that looks impressive, but what is really, truly helping us to grow spiritually? Lord, we just pray for wisdom and discernment. It might be something different for us. Help us not to pass judgment on others because we're at different places, Lord. But we pray that you would help us to understand these truths. And as we go into next week to realize we've been risen with Christ and so we can set our minds on things above. Lord, as we now transition to a time of reflecting on what you have done for us, we acknowledge our sin, our brokenness, and our great need for saving. And so we thank you that the provision for sin has been met in the glorious person and sacrifice, the propitiation of Jesus Christ. So today we glory in the cross and we thank you that you've made a way. So we thank you, we worship you, and we celebrate the cross during this time in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.